today. Matthew chapter 5 and in chapter 19. We are in a series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is very different than the kingdom that we live in here on earth. Today, we'll talk about marriage and divorce and singleness today. We are a group of people that know something about divorce, about how it affects relationships, about the kind of deep pain and damage that can come from a marriage that's dying. And we know that a divorce doesn't just impact a husband and a wife. The consequences ripple throughout the entire family. There is hardly a family in this country that hasn't at some time been touched by the tragedy of divorce. And all this being said, Nova Community Church will continue to be committed to raise the value of marriage and to continue to be loving and compassionate and be a redemptive community that God calls us to be. There was so much to talk about on the subject of marriage and divorce, and there is so much emotion. I think you would agree with me. There was so much emotion attributed to these topics. Today we'll get a foundational perspective from Jesus' teaching on the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God on both marriage and divorce, and then we'll bring some practical application to both married and single people this morning from our text in Matthew chapter 5 and then Matthew chapter 19, verse 31 in chapter 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And in chapter 19, verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I'm going to make some observations and then I'm going to make some opening comments also about marriage and divorce. First, an observation. The the first observation we can make here is this is called the antithesis section of the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the middle of this section in the Sermon on the Mount called, the, called this because six times we hear the statement Jesus uses, you have heard it said, and then he follows up with, but I say to you. Now this is Jesus' declaration on the antithesis of conventional teaching of what people have been hearing at that time. This is not Jesus saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. 
Instead, Jesus is contrasting the, their interpretation of the Old Testament with the faulty interpretations and applications. And in each case here, Jesus is teaching how the Old Testament is to be properly interpreted and applied and how the law and the prophets are fulfilled. And we find this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, I, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to, uh, I've, I've, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So remember, Jesus is speaking in the context which the religious leaders of that day, they were dictating the proper course for attaining righteousness and through their, their own interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, many times this meant meeting their legalistic requirement, but in the antithesis section, Jesus demonstrates the correct interpretation and application of the Old Testament must be based on proper intent and must be based on proper motive. Now, once again, the structure in this section is Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you, and then Jesus gives the proper pronouncement of the intended meaning and application of the Old Testament passage. We're right in the midst of this antithesis section. Now, here's a a comment we can make on this subject of marriage and divorce. There are current statistics on marriage, divorce, and family, and they're all over the map, really. There is a census that's happening right now. If, if you're an American, you're, you're probably taking this census or you've taken this census already. There'll be more data compiled, and in this next year we'll get a, a better understanding of that. But generally what people say is one out of every two first marriages will end in divorce in America. One out of every two first marriages will end in divorce. And the majority of children under the age of five will live the rest of their childhood without both parents. That's what we know today in the most current statistics on marriage and divorce and family. But we know, and you know, if you have read anything on the internet, watched TV, read a book, a recent book, a magazine, that there is a great marriage debate out there. Do you agree with me? Yeah. Some say that we've got to go back to traditional marriage. And others say that we need a redefinition of marriage. Uh, we need to redefine who can get married. And um, we need more clarity on prenuptial agreements. We need multiple divorce options. We need to deal with timeshare children better. And still others say, you know, let's just get rid of marriage. We don't need someone else telling us how to define our relationship. Well, we're not going to get into the details of all of this, but... In the new quarter of NOVA classes that's coming up in a couple weeks, we're going to offer a class called the Gospel and Counterculture, and we'll discuss current cultural trends on topics like the redefinition of marriage and the Gospel's impact on that, and that's going to come up in a a few weeks in our summer quarter of NOVA classes. The fourth observation or, or statement we can make is this, that marriage was invented by God. That is so true. Marriage was invented by God. Marriage is an interesting topic of discussion in our post-Christian culture. There is something enduring about marriage. It just won't go away. Well, why is that? It's because it was invented by God. Now, that's why it's enduring. And it has an inherent grasp on our hearts. There has never been a society or culture found 
no matter how remote, that didn't have marriage. Because the Bible says that God invented marriage on the day that he created human beings. Now, this is not, marriage is not a great idea dreamed up by some early humans or our founding fathers. It was created by God, and that means you can't get rid of it. If it was a human invention, well, you can alter it. You can change it. You can redefine it. But it was divinely instituted, so you can't change it. I think it's interesting, many times in my office or somewhere in the building, we'll have, uh, I'll have a marriage counseling session with a married couple. And that married couple is going through a crisis or there's some conflict that they need help working out. And so um, let, let's just say, I'll, I'll, I'll say to the, to the husband, I'll say, after presenting their issue and their conflict, I'll say, you know, you, just really, you really need to forgive your wife. And then a lot of times that person will shoot right back at me. Don't tell me how to run my marriage. You know, their throat is swelling and it's red and veins are popping out. You know, it's real emotional. Don't tell me how to run my marriage. And I, and I think about that and I think to myself, you know, God is the one who created marriage. He's the one that instituted. He regulates it. It's not your creation or invention. The Bible says you need to forgive your spouse. It's not your doing. Let's talk about our text today. We'll be in Matthew 19 and Matthew chapter 5. But I, I want to take this um, real slow and real steady. We'll make five points, three about marriage, two about divorce, and then we'll wrap all of this up. We'll, we'll have some application in between the points. But let's take this slow and take this very foundational. Number one. What does God say about marriage and divorce? Number one, the essence of marriage is covenant. The essence of marriage is covenant. The essence of something makes it what it is. For instance, physicians wear white coats. I mean, well, physicians wear white coats. But a white coat doesn't make a person a physician because we know that barbers wear white coats too, right? And VBS leaders, uh, directors wear white coats, and so do scientists and lab technicians. Um, a lot of people wear white coats, but it doesn't make you a physician. Well, what makes marriage a marriage? Is it a feeling? Is it affection? It can't be affection because if you have a dog, well, if you have a good dog, um, uh, a dog has affection, right? And dogs don't get married, well... Most dogs don't get married. And, and, uh, but is, is marriage about procreation, um, making babies? Is marriage about creating a family and having children? Well, it can't be that because we know rats and rabbits do a really good job at, at making babies, right? And, so, and rats and rabbits aren't married. So what makes a marriage? That's our question here. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united or cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, the word cleave there, or united, literally means to make a covenant. It's a public vow. You are not married until you make a public vow. <clears throat> a practical application of those who are getting married, uh, those who are planning one day to be married, 
I, I sometimes officiate weddings, and sometimes as I meet with a couple, they'll come in and we'll talk about how that wedding ceremony is going to go, and the couple will sometimes say, well, we'd really like to do personal vows. I mean, we appreciate the vows that you would read, and we would say, I do too, but we really want to do personal vows, and I, and I, and I, I like that because it makes it personal, but then I shudder because I, I really want to know what those vows say. I, I, I say, can, I, can you show me those vows? Well, they're very personal. I say, okay, all right. Um, because people don't really understand what it means to make a covenant. Here's the way the personal vows usually go. Personal vows go like this. I love you. You are amazing. You're so beautiful. You're so handsome. You're my best friend. That's the way personal vows usually go. And if you did personal vows, I, I don't know about your vows probably, uh, so I apologize. But those are nice, but it's not a vow. A covenant vow is about a future promise. And so a wedding vow, in a wedding vow, you're, you're promising future love. You're promising future amazement. You're, you're promising future friendship. And a covenant does not address your personal feelings, however important they are at that, at that time. But a covenant is you're promising to be loving, and you're promising to be tender. You're promising to be affectionate. Regardless of your condition or my circumstance, it's a future promise. What a covenant does, a covenant controls your future. The only way to control your future and not be controlled by future feelings or future hormones or future circumstances is through a covenant promise. The essence of marriage is covenant vow. The second point we can make here about marriage is this. The purpose of marriage is intimate, deep, intimate friendship. That's the purpose of marriage. It's, it's deep, intimate friendship. What is a marriage for? I think that's a really good question for us to figure out. What is a marriage for? Now, once again, in, in verse 5 of, of chapter 19 and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read this, we have this verse here, but the first three words are so important here. It says, for this, what? Reason, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what reason is this? Now, what happens before this pivotal phrase tells us a reason for marriage? In Genesis chapter 2, we have the first time in the creation account that God says that something is not good just before all of this, this, this verse 24. You see, God, in the creation account, he creates light, and he says, and it was good. He creates a sky, and he creates water, and he says, it is good. He creates plants and sun and stars and animals and fish. He creates human beings, and he says, it was good. He pronounces a benediction, a, a good word is what he said. He creates, he says, I give a good word. It was good. And for the first time, we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that God doesn't pronounce a benediction. He, pronoun- he pronounces a malediction. Mala meaning evil or bad. Diction meaning a, a, a pronouncement. So he pronounces all this good. He creates and pronounces all this good. And for the very first time, in, in verse 18, chapter 2 of Genesis, he says, this is not good, a malediction. Let's read what it is. 
He says, the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman out of the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Verse 24, and that is why, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and he is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is the reason. Now, God creates Eve to cure loneliness here. And he creates Eve to complete Adam to become this friend and this companion. Jesus teaches that the essence of marriage, once again, number one, the essence of marriage is covenant, vow, right? And the purpose of marriage is intimate friendship. Over and over again in the Old Testament, in in the description of this covenant relationship, there is a Hebrew word used, and that Hebrew word is aloop. It's a unique Hebrew word meaning special confidant, covenant partner, an intimate friend. Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 16 describes this. This is my beloved. This is my friend. In Genesis chapter 2, after God creates, he takes the rib out, the bone from the side, and creates a woman for Adam. The man sings in verse 23. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He says, now, finally, this is, this is part of me. This is me. He, he, he sees woman, and he says, this is me. It's deep. It's intimate. It's a, it's a companion friendship there. When you have an aloop, you have the deepest friend. You have shared the top of yourself, the very best of yourself, and the very worst of yourself, and everything in between when you have a loop. And I know that it's scary to share the deepest of yourself, isn't it, at times? The most vulnerable part of yourself. And I know there's so many times that, that my wife and I are sharing on this level, and I just don't want to share on that level. I don't want to go there. I don't want you to see the the ugliness inside her. I don't want you to see the the giddiness of my happiness sometimes. I want to keep that to myself. But with an aloop, you don't want to, but you do. You share the deepest part of yourself, and you find that other person accepting you for all that you are and loving you for all that you are in affirming who you are. That's an aloop. What a wonderful pet name you can have for your spouse. Aloop, how are you today? Right? But that is the covenant, deep, intimate friendship. And this is the purpose of marriage, this deep friendship. And this is the best of what it, it, this is, the best of what it is. Because we are all weighed down by our own humanity and imperfection and insecurities and sin, even in the best of marriages, this deep sharing, that's honest, real talk here, this, even in the best of marriages, this deep, intimate sharing, it happens occasionally. 
But when it does, and if you've ever experienced that, it doesn't get any better than that. Now, here's some practical application for for single people. This is why the church says you should marry someone with the same faith commitment. This is why the church says this. Now, this is not rule or policy at Nova Community Church. It is a living principle, however. And to have a marriage with an intimate friend, you have to open up. You have to share the deepest part of yourself. And if, if, if Jesus Christ is the most important, deepest part of yourself, the most important relationship you have in your life, and you share that with your spouse and that person doesn't understand, or they laugh at you, or they mock you, or they just don't get it, what you end up feeling is violated then. You can never have a great marriage if you covenant with someone who doesn't share in that deep, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's a practical application for single people. Now for married people... Here's an application. Your marriage will be as good as you want it to be. And it's hard work to share that deep, intimate, vulnerable part of your life. So what you end up doing a lot of times in many marriages is you, you, uh, you get in the habit of not sharing those deep things, which then turns into many secrets in your life that could cause decay in your marriage. Because the last time, perhaps, that you tried to share something deep, you got laughed at, or you got argued with, or you got shamed about. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go home right after this worship service and you look at each other in the car on the drive home and say, I got something to tell you, and then you just go there and just share it all and, you know, sort of emotionally vomit all over the place. I'm not not suggesting that right away. It may take some time. Um, but you need to get your marriage back, back on track of this deep, intimate friendship. So let me just give you a practical thing to do if you're married today, to, to share with one another what makes you the very happiest. Just, just the very, what, would, what makes you the very happiest brings out the most joy. Share that, okay? And then share the bottom of it. What makes you the, the, just the saddest? Share what makes you the happiest and share what makes you the saddest. Now, if you're listening to this sharing, let me give you a tip here. Well, let me give you a rule here. How about that? Do not reply with an answer. Just listen. No fixing of the sad part. You know, they share real sad. Oh, I can, I, we can cure that. No, don't do that. Okay, just listen. No laughing at, no judging. Just sharing and listening. Be an active empathetic listener to all of that. It'll do wonders for your marriage. One last practical application for singles. And this is sort of my bone to pick with you single people, okay? Um, If friendship and covenant are the basis of marriage, if friendship and covenant are the basis of marriage, and romance and sexuality grows out of friendship and covenant, how do you decide who to date? Because I see single people, you walk into a room and there's a room full of other single people, 
And you're looking for the ones that you're attracted to first, right? You're looking for the ones that there's some chemistry with first. And what you do is you eliminate just a whole mess of eligible single people. Let me suggest that you date for friendship first. I know that's radical. And you've got to really think, how does that work now then? But let me suggest that you date for friendship first, not attraction and not chemistry. And when you begin with friendship, you let that sexual attraction and chemistry grow out of that friendship. I'm really against these superficial online dating apps that are out there. You've heard of Tinder and Coffee and Bagel and those things where you just look at your phone, you, someone's picture's right there because they're geographically close to you, and you either swipe to the right or swipe to the left. Nah, don't like them. Nah, they got a droopy eye. You know, no, uh, that, you know, don't like that. You know, don't like this. And, and there's, there's, no, there's no friendship. It's just all about attraction, all about chemistry. I think we should let friendship be the rule if you're a single person for looking for dates and let any sort of chemistry and romance go from there. Okay, I'm done. All right, uh, number one, marriage and divorce. The essence of marriage is covenant. Number two, the purpose of marriage is intimate friendship. Number three, let me just, this is sort of a statement I, I, I want to make, but I think it's really important. Marriage is powerful. Marriage is so powerful. The marriage relationship has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. The way I mean by this is this, and I've seen this time and time again. If your marriage is weak and it's troubled, and yet everything else in your life is going great and everything else is strong, your career, you've got a great house, you've got, you're good at your, your uh, amateur sports, you know, everything else is good and you're strong in your life, but if your marriage is weak, you're, you, you just feel weak. But if your marriage is strong and your career is just terrible, your finances are just out of control, your house is just a shambles, and everything else is bad, but your marriage is strong, you feel really strong. See, marriage can recreate your self-image. Self-image comes from all of your successes and all of your failures, but more about your failures, right? And self-image comes from the unfair way people treated you all the way throughout the years. But then you get married, and you may be surprised to find that your spouse has a power to challenge all of the accumulated authority of unfair judgments that has been put on your life that, cre- that creates in you a poor self-image. It's si- simply this. You know, if your spouse says to you, you're ugly, and everyone else in the world, at the workplace, your neighborhood, all your friends say, you're beautiful. Or you're handsome, but your spouse says you're ugly. How do you feel? You feel ugly. But if your spouse says, you are so beautiful, you're so handsome, you're a hunk, and everyone else says, wow, you're ugly. (laughs) How do you feel? You feel beautiful. You feel like a hunk. And there's a bunch of other reasons why marriage is powerful. We, we can't get into that right now. We're gonna, let's, let's go to number four. Let's talk about divorce now from our text. The first thing about divorce, we've talked about marriage. Let's talk about divorce. 
Number four, divorce is like an amputation. Divorce is like an amputation. Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate or put asunder. Now, we live in a time where divorce is considered normal and it's considered natural. Therefore, it needs to be as easy as possible. That's what our world is creating now. And Jesus says that if you understand marriage as deep unity and oneness, divorce is not like dissolving a business business partnership. Divorce is not like taking off a coat. Divorce is like taking off your arm. That's what divorce is about. Divorce is not normal. Divorce is not natural. And it can be as radical as taking off your arm, an amputation. So the teaching here, as we read it, is divorce can be done. Divorce does happen, and it can be survived, but it should not be entered into lightly. Any doctor, any physician would lose their right to practice medicine if the first thing they prescribed is amputation. Say you went to the doctor and your elbow is hurting just a little bit. And you go to the doctor and say, my elbow's hurting and it's kind of swollen. And the doctor examines it, takes an x-ray, an MRI, takes a look at it and says, wow, yeah, you got some ligaments that are separating in your elbow. Here's what we're going to do. Let's cut it off at the shoulder and it won't hurt anymore. That doctor, that, that's not the right thing. The divorce, a divorce is the last thing you do. It's the most drastic thing you do. It's a life-threatening thing, and it's not to be entered into lightly. Number five, divorce is sometimes necessary for life. If divorce is like an amputation, divorce is sometimes necessary for life. Now, if divorce is like an amputation, sometimes the doctor will prescribe it for a life-saving measure. Amputation is takes place because part of the body is dead or it's harmful to the rest of the body and so something needs to be taken off. Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Now even though God meant marriage to be permanent. The permanence of marriage and permanence of marriage helps you to grow. Marriage helps you to open up and be vulnerable and to come to grips with who you really are. Marriage needs to be permanent. And Jesus says that because sin has entered into the world, there is a condition or there is an exception which divorce is sometimes the only way to survive. Now, the exception for divorce, according to Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, is what is called sexual immorality. From the original language, this word is translated porneia. Now, we, of course, get our word pornography from the word, Greek word porneia. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, here, Jesus is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4, where there is a condition of giving a certificate of divorce, and those conditions would be that you have lost favor in your eyes with your spouse, and that there is some uncleanliness with your spouse. 
And when Jesus was teaching this in the most liberal Jewish teaching, the most liberal Jewish teaching allowed divorce for almost anything. Silly things like if your spouse burned your breakfast, you can offer them a certificate of divorce. If your, if your spouse did not have a clean household, was not a good uh, uh, cleaner of the home, you can offer a certificate of divorce. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul goes more into, into detail on the subject of divorce and remarriage. We're going to talk more about this. The Apostle's teaching supports Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk more about this in our summer Nova class. Let me just say this. I take pornea or sexual immorality to be this, to be a serial, harmful, sinful sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage that causes the marriage to be irreparably dead. And when that intense violation happens and that marriage can be deemed as good as dead, then amputation can take place. For many Christians, many Christians can be very self-righteous and legalistic when it comes to divorce. They make judgments to see if someone's divorce meets all the specs of a biblical divorce without looking deeper into the intent or the motive in the painful circumstances of a marriage that's dying. I, I think it's important for us to say and to see that a divorced person has not committed the unforgivable sin. Everyone, it seems, has their life touched in some way by divorce. And Jesus says, there's two commandments that hang on all the law and the prophets. The one, Jesus says, is the greatest, most important commandment. He says the second is much like it. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. Love one another as, I, as, as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so for single people with all of this today that we've looked at, if you're single, you might be thinking, wow, that's so serious that I'm a little anxious about all of this. I'm a little scared. And as married people, you might read through all of this and you're thinking about your own marriage and you're thinking, hmm, I've got some work to do or what did I get myself into? We have learned today that marriage takes an unconditional commitment and vulnerability. It, it, we know that marriage is powerful and I need to love my spouse just as Christ loved the church, how, how Jesus Christ died and gave himself up for the church. And if I love my spouse as Jesus loved, I can experience a marriage that is better than I can ever imagine. On the other hand, I could be very disappointed. And all of this points you to Jesus, who will provide everything that you need for life and living. And what Jesus has called us to, he will most certainly equip us for. Let's pray together.
Dear Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning that gives us guidance in our society, our current culture that is coming at marriage in so many different directions. Dear Father, thank you for creating marriage, you being the author and the perfecter of this marriage relationship. Thank you for instituting it and regulating it and giving us instruction on it. So Lord, give us courage, give us boldness to to be people of the word, people that understand marriage from the Bible. Father, help us to, to be compassionate and have understanding about divorce also because we know it has touched just about every person in our lives. And God, we give you praise and glory for always equipping us, calling us to a great marriage and equipping us for it. God, also equip us to be compassionate lovers of people who need to be a part of a redemptive community. In Jesus' name, amen. Two of our board members, Bob Jampoli and Lee Atkins, are going to share some good news with us right now as we close our time of worship. It's exciting to bring you an encouraging report on behalf of us as an entire church. We've had a theme today going Uh, Not really planned, but it turned out to be a theme of missions and evangelism with commissioning uh, our friends back to Indonesia and talking about VBS during the summer. And I'm happy to share with you some of the things that have been happening at our board meeting. We've been greatly encouraged by your faithful and generous giving to the church. And as a result, we gave 8% over our budget last year. And in our board meetings, we've been prayerfully thinking about what is God telling us to do? And a big part of it is reaching out beyond our church. And so one thing we wanted to report to you, and Lee's going to introduce a slideshow quickly here, is that we approved sending out a set of significant gifts to a number of mission organizations that we don't generally touch, but some of you have been involved in. And those include global outreach type things. Dean reported that a gift was brought to the Japanese ministry in Boston, Um, missionaries who have visited here we were able to send support to, as well as regional activities. Uh, In the southwest United States, there's a group of church planners starting a church in 